Okay, good morning. How we doing? Good and great. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, well, we're going to keep our series on the Psalms going. And I've got the privilege to talk about the longest psalm. In fact, it is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Anybody know what it is? It's right behind me, isn't it? So... It's Psalm 119. So Psalm 119 is pretty interesting. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, If you're to open your Bible, pretty much dead center. uh, It's right there. And it is all about the Word. So Psalm 119 actually contains 176 verses. Okay? And it's actually an acrostic poem. You guys remember what an acrostic is? So it's an acrostic, and it, it involves the entire Hebrew alphabet. So there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, okay? Every letter is represented, and in each stanza, there are eight verses. So 22 letters, eight verses in each, excuse me, 22 letters, 22 stanzas, eight verses in each stanza. That's how we get 176. I I was tempted just to read Psalm 119, you know, drop the Bible and just sit in my seat. Honestly, start to finish, it takes about 15, 20 minutes, depending on your reading level, Uh, But what we're going to do this morning is I'm just going to take the first two letters. So that's Aleph and Bet. That's how you say it in the Hebrew language. And we're just going to look at them because they're representative. They're indicative of what the rest of the 22 stanzas uh, read. So so that's what we're going to be looking at. So if you could read with me, I think I'm just going to read the first two letters. So it says this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your words. So you guys probably know where I'm going. I'm going to give you an old-fashioned sermon on why you need to read your Bible. Anybody excited about that? Okay, so before you check out, break out your cell phones, this is not just going to be a sermon on why the Bible is good. I get it. You guys are wearing masks because you want to hear a sermon. There is a general appreciation, respect, and value for the Word of God in this room. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So I thought we'd go about it with a little bit of a different angle. I thought this would be a little more exciting and fun. Because very often when we talk about the value of the Word, we just talk about it in isolation. Well, this morning I want to compare and contrast the Word with other words that we read on a daily basis. So I want you to think just for a moment, what what are your favorite words to read? You know, when you wake up in the morning, what do you enjoy reading the most? Before you go to bed at night, what do you love to read? What are the books, the articles, 
the resources, the scholarly journals, if you're really academic? What do you enjoy reading? What are your favorite words? Okay, I'm going to throw up five different categories, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that these are good, but the word is best. These are good sources, but this is the ultimate source. So some of you probably really enjoy reading the news. Does anybody fall in that category? And it doesn't matter, you know, what your channel is set on. You might be Fox, MSNBC. Let's go, go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, you know, you might be CNN. You might be old school and you still get your news from the Times Georgian or the AJC. You might be a young person and you just scroll through Twitter to get your news. But a lot of us love the news, right? Because there's facts, there's information, there's details, and we're searching for truth. We want to know what's going on in the world. We, we want to know uh, how the world works. Well, if you notice in verse 1, the author or the psalmist says that the word is the law of the word. Excuse me, the law of the Lord. And here's what he's saying when he describes Scripture as the law. He's saying it's normative. It's the standard. This isn't just optional. These aren't suggestions. These aren't my opinions. What is contained in Scripture is binding on all people in all times. In verse 2, the psalmist describes God's words as testimony, or some versions say statutes. Testimony or statutes, well, what is a testimony? It is a legally binding witness. What is a statute? It is something that's eternal that is always re relevant regardless of the century or regardless of where you are in the world. If something is a statute, it, it is always relevant regardless of the time or the place. So think about it, my young bachelors, God's word is unlike that half gallon of milk or sour cream in the back of your refrigerator. It never expires or goes bad. Ladies, okay, God's word is unlike you know, that, that dress or that sweater you got from the sales rack two years ago, it never goes out of style, okay? God's Word is unlike your iPhone. It never needs a system update. It is always relevant because it's a statute. Okay, this is actually where we get the word statue. Just think about what a statue is. It's something that's made out of marble or granite or stone. It, it can withstand any weather. It's always standing. It's permanent. Okay, it's unchanging. That's God's word. So we got we our news lovers. Now we're going to move on to just communication. Okay, so for some of you, your favorite words is some sort of correspondence between you and your friends. It might be a text message. It might be an email. You might be old school and you're still writing notes and letters. Who just loves communication? I love reading messages, messages you know, from my family members, from my friends, and from my loved ones. Anyone fall into that category? There we go. Okay. And so here's what we see in verse 3. God's word is described as his ways. His ways. A way is like a settled path. It is how God moves. It is how God walks. So when the psalmist describes God's word as his ways, he's saying, this is how God discloses his nature, how he behaves, his characteristics, his attributes, his very nature. Later on in Psalm 119, we're not going to read it all this morning, uh, God's word is described as his promises. Now, when we think about God's promises contained in Scripture, we think about the promises we take. I vow to obey God. But God's word primarily is a promise that he makes to us. It's his promise 
of how he promises to love and give his self to us, his people, for all of eternity. So God's word is the ultimate source of communication. Let's move to number three. Some people love to read instructions. Instructions, okay? So how many of you love to read how-to manuals, cookbooks, and recipes? Instructions. So sometimes we need instructions because, you know, there's some sort of uh, crisis going on. So maybe we got a flat tire and we're on the side of the road. What do we do? We pull the phone out. Hey, Siri, how do I change a tire? We get on Google and we look up instructions for changing a car tire. Some of my men, you're the do-it-yourself types. And so you've got a big home or garden project. And so you get on Google or you watch a YouTube video. How do I fix my toilet? Okay, how do I add a room? How, how, how do I take on this landscaping project? Some of you ladies, you like to go to the blogs for your next crafting project. You go to the cookbook for your next baking or you know, dinner dish. And so in verse four, we find out that God's word is the ultimate source of instruction because the psalmist reveals that God's words are precepts. Precepts. The word precept in the original language literally means expert advice. Okay, this is expert advice, meaning this is the wisdom of a shepherd or a physician or a counselor. Do you know what word we get from precept? We get the word prescription. You see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying you're sick. Your soul is sick. You have a sinful condition, and God's word is medicine for your soul. God has written this word, and it is good for your health. It brings healing. Okay, so God's word is the ultimate source of instruction. Number four, okay, and this has more to do with our cultural, social climate, but a lot of us right now are reading articles, blog posts, okay, tweets on justice. Has anybody been reading a lot about justice, especially in light of what's going on uh, in our cultural climate? This has been a complex couple months, has it not? I mean, we got the complexity of a pandemic of COVID-19 in the midst of that. We, we, we've got exposure to racial injustice in our country. And then on top of that, we got a presidential election coming up in no time. All right. These are complex social moments. And so a lot of us are wondering, how should we think? How should we respond? What should I do? How should I approach this issue? And what do most of us do? We go immediately to where? To social media, right? We, we get on Facebook, we get on Instagram, we get on Twitter, trying to figure out the best way forward. Well, verse 7 says this, is that God's word contains his righteous rules. His righteous rules. What does that mean? Is that scripture is the standard of justice. And there is nothing unfair in the very words of God. And so if we want to know truly and deeply the things that God loves and the thing that God hates, it's right here in Scripture. Okay, so I'm going to make a little sidebar right here. And keep in mind, I work primarily with college students, young people. But there's a lot of social commentary, commentators, excuse me, columnists, critics, who are pointing out a recent phenomenon called social media activism. Anybody seen social media activism? There's an author named Andy Crouch, and this is how he defines social media activism. He calls it this, friction, the friction-free experience of activism. It's expressing enthusiasm, solidarity, or outrage for your chosen cause with a click 
of a few buttons. So here's what this looks like in our day and age is that very often we see injustice, we see something that's wrong. And so we say, I've got to do my part, so I'm just going to copy and paste. I'm going to take a screenshot. I'm going to retweet. And then I can pat myself on the back because I've done my part. And I didn't even have to get dressed up or leave my bedroom, right? This is social media activism. Now, let me say this. Social media has value. I mean, it's played a critical role in, in, in generating awareness, publicity, and organizing social movements, especially in the last few months. But I want us to think for a moment about the, the, about the, about the civil rights movement of the 60s. Think about that for a moment. People who participated in the civil rights movement of the 60s had to make real sacrifices, did they not? In order to be involved, okay, you had to participate in the sit-in because real social progress requires sacrifice. And so they had to march, they had to protest, they had to join a nonviolent movement. And if you think about the original civil rights movement, it was rooted and grounded in what? Instagram, Twitter, or what? The very word of God. Because very often, here's how the marches would begin. They would begin in the church where people would gather and they would read scripture and then they would pray. The leaders of the civil rights movement very often were who? They were reverends. Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., okay? Men and women like John Perkins and Rosa Parks were deeply committed Christians. In other words, the leaders of the civil rights movement, they took Psalm 119.11 to heart. They had stored up God's word in their heart so they may not sin against God. This was a movement that was motivated by the very word of God. Now, let's think about the most famous words of the civil rights movement. They're what? What did Martin Luther King say in Washington, D.C.? I have a what? I have a dream. You think about the march on Washington. Did you know this? that Dr. King wrote that speech at 3 a.m. the night before. And you can actually go back and watch the speech on YouTube, and you can see him right before he gets on stage. Okay, he's got his pen out, and he's crossing out lines, and he's scribbling in his notes. And then he starts speaking in perhaps one of the most famous speeches in American history, and 11 minutes in, guess what he does with his notes? He sets them aside, and he goes off script. And this is when he reaches the climax, the most famous part of his speech, where he starts talking about, I have a dream, and he makes just memorable quotes like this, let justice roll down. Well, where, where, where did Dr. King get these quotes from? Was this his imagination or his creativity? It came from where? It came from the book of Amos, okay? So what spills out of Dr. King in one of the most critical speeches in our, in our nation's history is the very word of God. You think about the most famous written words in the civil rights movement. It was what? Letters from a Birmingham jail. When Dr. King is locked up in a Birmingham jail and he writes a letter to the white clergy in Birmingham. And guess what? He doesn't have paper, he doesn't have a laptop, he doesn't have Google. Okay, he can't look up different articles and sources. He doesn't have a Bible. And he sits down with a pen and scraps of newspaper and toilet paper. And guess what? He writes this letter. And in the letter, let me make sure I get this right, there are 127 separate citations of Bible verses because it just spills out into his writing. Okay, he cites the Apostle Paul. I mean, the, the, the letter almost reads like a prison epistle. 
So the point I'm making is this, and this is particularly for our younger generation, but all of us, is that if we want to be involved in justice, we need to spend more time in Scripture than on social media. Yeah, we need to spend more time searching the inerrant, of word, inerrant word of God than scrolling through Instagram because God word, God's word, it compels us to pursue justice. Okay, let's move on to number five, okay? And some of you, just as a classic, what do you love to read? We love to read stories, right? We just love stories. And we all like different stories. Some of you like to read stories for the wisdom, the inspiration, maybe an entertainment. And it doesn't matter what your genre is. You, you could be the nonfiction. I only read self-help books. You could love fiction and mystery and novel. Some of you just like reading magazines. But in verse 9, we read this. As the psalmist ref, re, refers to Scripture as the Word. Okay? The Word, meaning this, that unlike any blog article, any social media post, any book, this is the Word of God. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is not human. And every time you open Scripture, you have the opportunity to encounter God himself. And so once again, this reminds us that God's Word is not primarily a book of principles or rules, although it does contain those things. It's a story. And the story that it reveals is a story of God's love for us. Now, let me clarify one thing. I'm not saying, I'm not advocating we should be Bible-only people, okay? I'm not saying you need to burn your books, burn your magazines. I like to read. I like to read a lot each and every day. But what I, and, and especially when it comes to this, this idea of justice, it's important to be well-read and well-researched and to listen to academics and professors and experts in different fields. But what I, what I am saying is this, is those things are good, but God's Word is best. This is the ultimate source of truth. This is the ultimate way to know God. Only God's word gives us the ability to know God personally. Only God's word is incapable of error. Only God's word is sufficient. It's all we need for salvation, for satisfaction, and for growth in Christ's likeness. That's point number one. That's the value, the importance of God's word. Are you guys hanging with me? Can you give me a little nod? Okay. There we go. But sometimes we get it wrong, do we not? And sometimes we get it wrong. So this is point number two. And, and usually when we get it wrong, when it comes to reading, interpreting, and living out God's Word, is we tend to be overly simplistic, and we tend to be reductionistic with God's Word. I, I hope you see in point number one that we see this. God, God's Word is multifaceted, right? It's multidimensional. And sometimes when we read, all right, we reduce it. We reduce it to one of four things. First off, we treat God's Word exclusively as a how-to manual. So for those of you who grew up in church and maybe vacation Bible school, do you remember this acrostic? The word Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Anybody remember that? Okay. Yeah, a little silly right there. But, but, but that, that's the how-to manual approach. And we like how-to manuals. Some of you are probably saying, I need to save some money, so I need a how-to manual. I buy the Dave Ramsey book, right? I save the money, and I'm good five, ten years down the road. Recently, I just read a how-to manual on how to make a vision plan for your life and leadership. And so I'm working through this process of thinking five, ten years down the road for my life and ministry. 
My wife is just wrapping up a how-to manual. She's actually writing one on how to hand letter and, and write with creativity. Uh, and and it, it's very artistic. But oftentimes, that's how we approach God's Word. And this is the wrong way to approach it. It's just a manual for successful Christian living. And if I just follow these steps, I'll live a bold, confident, and empowered life. That's not what the Bible is primarily all about. Because the Bible is primarily not about what we do to achieve satisfaction. It's about what God has done for us to save us and to satisfy us. And look, no doubt there are section, sections in God's Word where we're commanded to go and to do something. But almost always before we find one of these sections, what do we read first? Usually there's an explanation that we need to believe and to rest and to trust in first what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so the problem with reading or approaching God's Word as a how-to manual is it makes the Bible primarily about who? But us. The Bible's mainly about Jesus. It's not about us saving ourselves through a list of steps because we know this, that only Jesus saves. And that's the theme of Scripture. So that's one way we get it wrong. We just approach it as a how-to manual. The second way we get it wrong, we approach God's Word exclusively as a theology textbook. A theology textbook. And we make it all about the doctrine. And we miss the importance of knowing God personally. We study, but we avoid encountering God in a personal way. The third way we get it wrong, we tend to pick and choose. Anybody do this? We pick and choose. Our nation is doing this. And look, everyone in this room, we've got a general appreciation and respect for the Word of God. But our nation has said certain parts of the Bible are primitive, they're outdated, they're antiquated, they're regressive. I mean, I interact with people sometimes, and they come across a verse in the Bible, and they'll just say this, look, Ben, I just don't think this applies to me. This, this, this just doesn't apply to me. The classic example of picking and choosing in Scripture is Thomas Jefferson. This is a picture right here of the Jefferson Bible, very fitting as we celebrate uh, July 4th and our nation's independence. But we know Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers. He was a noted deist. He actually did not believe uh, in the divinity of Jesus and removed any supernatural reference in the Bible. So here's actually what he did. He broke out a razor and some glue, and you can see right here, he cut out any reference to miracles, to the supernatural, and the resurrection of Jesus. He just picked and he chose. So before you judge Thomas Jefferson, just know this. We do this in our culture as well. As modern Westerners, as Americans, we tend to emphasize this. We pick that God is loving and merciful and forgiving, and we tend to avoid the descriptions of God as wrathful and just and holy, as we talked about last week. We, we, we also do this individually. We also do this politically. Okay? We're about to go there. So I, I recently read an article by Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City. And he was just giving a description of the early church, some of the hallmarks, the characteristics of the early church. And he gave us four. And he said, here are four things that the early church was sold out to. He said, number one, racial justice and, and, and um, excuse me, racial justice and harmony. Number two, hospita hospitality and care for the poor and the marginalized. 
Number three, the sanctity of life or being pro-life. And number four, they were sexual countercultural, counterculture, meaning that they believed that sex belonged in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Now think about this list of four things. The first two things sound what? They sound very liberal, especially in our two-party system. Number three and number four sound very what? Very conservative in our political system. And do you see, do you see what the Bible is saying? It's pushing back on our modern American two-party system. Because in both of these parties, they say, look, you can talk about these two things, but you've got to stay silent about these two things. There's no one party that combines all four. And so what does that mean for us, especially as we stare at a looming election? Is that as believers, as people of the word, there should be a little discomfort with either political party. We should feel a little discomfort. We should not over-identify as conservatives conservatives or liberals because even the Bible corrects all political parties, okay? So the Bible corrects. It doesn't allow us to pick and choose. The Bible corrects our parties, but also corrects our personhood. So think of some of the most famous Bible verses about the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? Teaching and correction. Some versions say reproof. So ask yourself, when is the last time I read the Bible and it corrected me? Think about Hebrews 4.10. It describes the Bible this way. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. Ask yourself, when is the last time the word of God pierced me? Romans 3.20 says this, through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. When is the last time I read the law and it revealed new knowledge of new sin? See, the question you gotta ask yourself is if the Bible has never challenged me, the way I think, the way I talk, the way I vote, the way I behave, maybe I'm not reading it correctly. By default, the Bible has to correct us. It has to change us because we're not Jesus and it is forming us into Jesus. That's how we get it wrong, we pick and choose. And the final one is this, this is number four. I'm just gonna call it Motivation Monday, okay? Some of you old people, you might not get it, that's okay. Here's what I mean. We just read the Bible for inspiration, just encouragement. So I'm about to go play a big game. I'm about to step into a big meeting. Or it's just Monday and I need a little pick-me-up. And the Bible becomes, okay, like a cup of coffee. It becomes like a Red Bull, just a pick-me-up. And Scripture commands us to study the Word, to allow God's Word to search our hearts. Because ultimately it wants to conform our life and make us more like Jesus Christ. So if that's how we get it wrong... Let's talk very quickly about how we can get it right. And here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to give you a step-by-step plan or process for how to read the Bible. Because here's what I encourage you to do. If you're somebody who says, look, I really don't know how to study the Word deeply, here's what I think you should do. You should find somebody in your life, and there's plenty of people scattered throughout this sanctuary, someone who you know reads the Bible daily and reads it deeply. Here's what you should do. You should say, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I pay for your lunch? You know, can I pay for your dinner? And will you show me how you study the Bible daily? Okay, and they'll do it. 
they'll do it. That's the best way. I'm just going to give you a couple principles and a couple very specific practical things that I do. We're going to talk about before, during, and after when you actually open the Word of God. So before you open the Word of God, I would encourage you to do this. Prepare your heart and prepare your mind. Okay, prepare your heart and prepare your mind. In verse 6, the psalmist says this, my eyes are fixed on your commandments. Do you see what he's describing? He's describing focus. He's saying I'm limiting. I'm actually removing distractions and I'm focused on God's word. Now, I said I'm going to make some very specific applications. What this probably means for a lot of us is that before we touch our phones, we spend time with Jesus. Okay? Do you know this? Statistics would suggest that 90% of Americans check their phone immediately when they wake up in the morning. There's also a study that says this, that if you don't want to be distracted by your phone, it either needs to be off or out of sight in another room. That even if you just silent your phone or leave it in your room, it still reduces your ability uh, to, to solve problems and to work on memory. And the point is this, is that when we open God's word, we want to experience the presence of God. We want to encounter him personally. And God wants our presence. And phones cause absence. Because what they encourage us to do is be two places at once. And oftentimes when we try to be two places at once, we're no place at all. So I would encourage you, this has been one very practical thing that I've applied to my life. Before I check my email, before I hop on social media, you know, before I get on Google, I spend time with Jesus. Okay, the second way we prepare a heart, verse 37, we didn't have time to read it, but it says this, I turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. So do you see what the psalmist is saying? He says, I'm fixing my eyes on your commandments, but I'm turning them away from worthless things. Well, what is a worthless thing? It's simply an idol. And did you know this? That idols make it really hard to read the Bible. Because idols will filter out things that we don't want to hear. And so one of the prayers that I pray every time I open the Word is I say, Holy Spirit, will you illumine my mind? Will you remove my blind spots, my idols, and my prejudices? And then I commit, just like this psalmist in verse 30, he says this, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. He's simply saying this, God, whatever you reveal to me, okay, I'm going to submit to it. I'm going to obey. I'm going to choose your way. So that's how we prepare our hearts and our minds for God's Word. And then during, as we read God's Word, we need to focus on two things, studying and meditating. And we're not going to spend much time here, but I just want to point out this, is that very often we can approach God's Word one way. But if you read Psalm 119, and I would highly encourage you to do that, take the 20 minutes and read the whole thing, and you'll notice the variety of ways that the psalmist approaches Scripture. He studies it. He says this, I seek it out. I learn from your word. He memorizes Scripture. He says, I recount it. I hide it in my heart. He meditates on God's word. He says, I consider it. I rejoice it. I praise. I lift up my hands. Very often, we do one or the other. Do you see what the psalmist is doing? He's saying, I study it rigorously and academically, but at the same time, I sing it joyfully and exuberantly. He says, I read it. I allow God to speak to me, but I also pray it. I respond by speaking to God. Do you see how the psalmist approaches God's word? 
It affects his head and his heart. It enlightens his mind, and it stirs the affections of his heart. And that's what we need to do as well. Okay, moving on. What do we do after we read the Word? We talked about before. We talked about during. What about after? It's pretty simple. We obey the Word of God. We've got to obey it. Think about Jesus. The longest recorded sermon we have from Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 7, and 8. It's the biggest chunk of red in the New Testament, okay? And at the very end of Jesus' sermon, he gives one final parable, and he compares a wise man with a foolish man, okay? And he says the fool hears the word, but the wise man does what? He hears the word and he obeys, The point is this, Jesus says, you can read my word, you can listen to my word, you can hear my word, but if you don't obey it, you're still a fool. So we need to apply it. We need to live it out. And in verse 32 of Psalm 119, here's what the psalmist says. He says, I run in the way. I run in the way. That means when we obey, we don't do it nonchalantly, we don't do it begrudgingly, we do it eagerly. I'm not shuffling, I'm not crawling, I'm not stepping, I'm sprinting. For me, here's what it looks like each and every day when I read my Bible. I try to write one application, one thing I'm going to do differently, one way I'm going to think, speak, interact, behave differently, and I try to give it my full devotion for the day. We need to be eager in our application. The second way we obey the Word is we do it openly. We do it openly. I know we got some teachers in the room, but think about this. How do you know when you've truly mastered a topic or a subject? How do you know when the students you instruct truly understand the lecture? It's when they can what? Y'all help me out. When they can teach it, right? When they can teach it, because the teacher learns the most. So if you really want to learn, understand, master, be experts in the Word of God, you should what? You should start to what? Y'all help me out? Okay, we're, we're, we're applying God's word right now, okay? You need to be open, okay, in responding to my questions, okay? You need to speak it because it says right here, okay, the psalmist says, with my lips, I what? I declare the rules of your mouth. If you jump all the way down to verse 46, the psalmist says, I speak it to kings, So the psalmist is saying, I not only read it, meditate on it, study it, it's on my lips. And when I talk about it, I talk about it boldly and sacrificially because I'm talking about it to who? To kings. Guess what kings can do when you say something that upsets them or irritates them? They can say, off with your head. So the psalmist is bold. This is costly evangelism. And guess what? It makes sense. We've just said, look, the Bible is the ultimate word. The Bible is the ultimate book. Everything else is written by humans, and it's good. And guess what? We love to talk about words, don't we? We love to talk about the books we read. We talk about the conversations we have, the letters that we've written or received, the messages people have given. We love to talk about good stories. Well, if this is the greatest story, why are we hesitant? Why are we fearful? Why is it awkward for us to talk about this one? So maybe ask yourself, what needs to change in my approach to the word? Is it before, during, or after? Is there something I can do different? And here's where we'll close it out. Here's where we'll close it out. Because this psalmist, this author, he's got a pretty high view of God's word. Would you guys agree with that? Okay, get a little, some head nods. 
And here's why. If you love an author, you're going to love his words, right? How silly would it be for you to say, I love William Faulkner, but, but his books are just nonsense sometimes, <laughs> right? Or for you to say, hey, that Ben guy, man, you, Ben, you're a cool guy. We get along. You know, we're buddies. But most of what you say is just stupid, right? It doesn't work that way, does it? Because if you love an author, if you love a speaker, you also love what? You love his or her words. And so the psalmist, he loves God, and therefore he loves what? He loves the words of God. And really, Psalm 119 can be distilled in Colossians 3.16, okay? All 176 verses can be summarized by one verse in Colossians where Paul says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And here's what Paul is instructing us. He's saying you've got to saturate, you've got to marinate your mind, your heart, your body, your soul in the very word of God. Yesterday, I ate a couple foods that were marinated or saturated. We had hot dogs and pickles. What is a pickle? It's just a cucumber that marinated in some sort of dill solution, okay? I had some ribs that marinated in in apple cider vinegar and barbecue sauce and honey and molasses, and it created this transformed piece of meat that was fall off the bone, finger looking good, okay? Well, if you want your mind, heart, body, and life to be transformed and changed, it needs to be saturated and marinated in the Word of God. And here's the thing. Once you do this, you're going to start to become more like Jesus Christ. And here's the thing about Jesus. When you study his life and ministry, then in Jesus' most challenging moments, guess what he fell back on? the very Word of God, because Jesus was saturated in the Word of God. Anytime Jesus got cut, what did he bleed? He bled Scripture. In his darkest moments, most difficult moments, his loneliest and most confusing moments on earth, Jesus always quoted Scripture. I'm just going to point out two, okay, and then we're going to wrap it up. But the first one is this, is before Jesus launches his public ministry, he spends 40 days in the wilderness. Do you guys remember this? It's at the very beginning of the Gospels. 40 days, okay? He's all alone. He's in the wilderness. He's fasting. That means no food. And he's tempted by Satan himself. And do you know this? This is actually where we get the word quarantine. For those of you who know your Latin, all right, quarantine literally means 40 days, And we actually get it from the biblical record. And some of you are probably saying, my quarantine has been awful, right? ESPN's been showing cornhole. I'm eating tuna sandwiches every night. You know, I can't hang out with my friends. Trust me, Christ's quarantine was worse, okay? And every time Satan comes at him, what does Jesus do? Do y'all remember this? He what? He quotes scripture each and every time. He responds to temptation, adversity, and trial with the very word of God. And so Satan says, all right, I can't beat you. And Satan says, I'm going to, it says that the devil departed and he returned at an opportune time. He deserted for a season. That's what the scripture says. And do you know when we see Satan reappear in the gospels? It's at the crucifixion. That's when he shows up again. And here's what's interesting. Every step, every moment in the crucifixion account Jesus quotes the word of God. Jesus bleeds scripture. When Judas betrays him, he quotes scripture. 
When the Roman soldiers prepare him for execution, he quotes scripture, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they've done. When he breathes his last breath and he experiences God the Father forsaking him, he says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. Every time Jesus is cut, he quotes scripture. And here's why he had to do that. This was the source of Jesus' spiritual strength. Because we're unlike Jesus. Jesus is the example of Psalm 119.11. Jesus is the embodiment of someone who stored up God's word in his heart and never sinned against God. In fact, Jesus didn't just store up the word. Jesus was the word. John 1 says that Jesus was what? The word made flesh. But we're unlike Jesus. And this is really just the story of the gospel because unlike Jesus... We haven't stored up God's word, and unlike Jesus, we've sinned against God. And and, and remember, the God that we sin against, the commands that we break, this is his law. These are his testimonies. We've rejected his ways. We've subverted his justice. We've ignored his story and the punishment that you and I deserve for this type of sin, this type of rebellion is death. It's separation from God. But do you see what Jesus did? He said, I'm going to store up God's word, and I'm going to live the perfect life. I'm going to take the death that you deserve, and I'm going to raise from the dead. So this is the reason why we read the word. This is the reason why we meditate on the word. This is the reason why we sing the word, okay? It's because it's the ultimate story. It brings us in contact with the word and his life, death, and resurrection on our part. You see what I'm saying, Okay. Why do we read the word? Why do we love the word? Because it is the direct revelation of the word, Jesus himself, okay? So may King's Chapel, may our men and women, our children, may we be people of the word, meditating on the word, studying the word, openly talking about the word because we love, we're devoted, we worship the word, okay? Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, we, we thank you for your word. One of the ways that the psalmist describes it is it's better than riches and it's sweeter than honey. Lord, I I pray for some of us that that we would encounter and read and experience your word that way. That that if it came down to uh, eating the best meal and spending time in your word, that we would choose scripture. If it came down to uh, uh, six figures in my bank account or having access to the word of God, that we would choose your scripture. Lord, may we be people of the word who read it, study it, sing it, share it, think about it night and day. Lord, most importantly, Lord, will we be people devoted to you, the word. We glorify you, live for you in all that we do. Amen.